0: Hello, and welcome to Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Girard. Today I am thrilled to be joined by Jessie Sirfilippi, an interpreter at the Schuyler Mansion State Historic Site in Albany, New York. Those of you who are tapped into history drama maybe on Twitter, as I certainly am might recognize her name as the author of a recent article looking into Alexander Hamilton as an enslaver. The piece, which is called As Odious and Immoral a Thing, Alexander Hamilton's Hidden History as an Enslaver, has been making a few waves in the history world. Hello, Jesse. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, I've been looking forward to this. So I'm just going to read Your thesis statement quite quickly, because I really enjoyed it. Not only did Alexander Hamilton enslave people, but his involvement in the institution of slavery was essential to his identity, both personally and professionally. The denial and obscuration of these facts in nearly every major biography written about him over the past two centuries has erased the people he enslaved from history. It has also created and perpetuated a false and incomplete picture of Hamilton as a man and founding father. So you didn't really pull any punches with that one. (laughs) No. (laughs) What inspired you to look into Hamilton's role as an enslaver?
1: So one of the things in general that I guess drew me to my current job actually was seeing at Schuyler Mansion, they were researching slavery so much and I was interested in joining them in that. So when I first started working there, we were researching the people, uh, Philip and Catherine Schuyler enslaved, and we still are. But I began to question, well, what about their children? You know, did they continue to enslave people like their parents did? So I started with one of the sons uh, and I found out, yes, he did. And then I kind of thought back, well, what about the daughters? And as I'm sure you know, one of the issues is there's not a lot of documentation when it comes to women. So, of course, I turned to their husbands and one of my former co-workers, Danielle Finichello, had written a blog post, two blog posts that are on our site blog with the question of, did Hamilton slave people? And I kind of thought back to that as I was working on my own blog post about their son, Philip Jeremiah Schuyler, and decided, well, I'll see if I can find an answer to that question. And two years later, I found an answer. <laughs>
0: So before we dig into it, can you just tell me like sort of a broad, who are the Schuyler family and what's their significance to New York?
1: Sure. So the Schuyler family, I guess, first of all, they're very connected to another powerful family. Philip Schuyler marries Catherine Van Rensselaer. She comes from one of the wealthiest families in New York. So combined, they're like this power couple. Mm. Um, You know, they're kind of they are on the scale of like the Washingtons. They're friends with the Washingtons. They host them at different times. So they're politically important. Schuyler becomes militarily important when he is chosen by George Washington to be a major general on the outset of the American Revolutionary War. He commands the Northern Department and he is removed from command uh, by the Continental Congress, which is probably why he's not as much in the history books. But he was really important. And I think one of the things that he didn't get credit for really was his role in the Battles of Saratoga. Mm -hmm. He was important in the lead up to that and in keeping General Burgoyne from getting there sooner. But he was removed from command before the battles could happen. So that's why he's not there. Um, But the family in general were really well known. Uh, They're politically important. influential. They had a lot of money and they educated their children, including the daughters really well.
0: Okay. So a lot of historians are well aware, but I feel like the general public still has this sort of surprise when they find out that the North and New York was a slaveholding state very much at this time. So the Schuyler family was a slaveholding family is something that you've you talk about. Yeah.
1: Yes. They enslaved uh, anywhere between about eight to 14 people in any given year from what we can currently tell. And we believe they enslaved over 40 people throughout the course of their 40 years of living at
0: Schuyler Mansion. What sources did you look into when you were looking at Alexander Hamilton as someone who may have owned slaves?
1: Yeah, so the main sources were primary sources, um, like his cash books, those were they ended up as my main go to I didn't think of them from the outset. I actually had a letter from Philip Schuyler to Hamilton that implied he was purchasing to enslave people for Hamilton and the letter that Hamilton would have written back was missing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of bothered me. Um, so I decided I had to find the response. And the response really was in the cash book where he recorded that transaction and paying Philip Schuyler for a woman and child. So that kind of led me to really going through his two cash books with a fine tooth comb. I've read them so many times. And I also ended up using Philip Schuyler's letters to Eliza, which are really invaluable in a lot of cases, but because Skylar's letters remain largely untouched, they were unedited, whereas Hamilton's, uh, there's some missing, there's some that uh, are crossed out at times. With Skylar, you can kind of get the full picture, even though Eliza's side of the conversation
0: is not there. That is fascinating, because uh, I think a lot of times people sort of assume because there's so many like Hamilton documents, right. And there's all these volumes and volumes of Washington books and Hamilton books and Jefferson books that you're getting everything perfectly. But it's such a fantastic point that a lot of the times people who are choosing which letters to publish and which letters make it are making conscious choices in a way that will lead to a certain perspective of someone. And, um, really interesting that that hasn't happened for Philip Schuyler. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is very interesting that it hasn't happened. Yeah. (laughs) Kudos for looking into cash books. That's where we found out that George Washington's teeth probably came from enslaved people. That's where some of the more blunt facts about slavery turn up in these financial papers and these books that might've either been edited out or just wouldn't have been discussed politely in correspondence. It, they're, they're great resources for that but they're not like fun to read <laughs> no, they're
1: not but you put it perfectly they're really great for that and without them you know that letter is probably gone forever so without it we would not know that yeah. he purchased these to enslave people
0: what what led you to write your article did it start out as a blog post and it turned into something bigger did people ask you to write a longer piece about it
1: Um, So I guess I thought like I write a blog post, um, because I just written one on uh, Philip Jeremiah Schuyler and slavery. So I thought, Oh, I'll write one on, you know, Alexander and Elizabeth Hamilton, you know, that shouldn't take too long. And uh, it ended up being a little bit longer than I expected. And as I was researching it, I realized that this was outgrowing something that could be put on the blog. But I just kept going because it felt like it was something important to do and I was discovering things Uh, that had been there the whole time but it's just going into the archives and looking for something else that maybe other historians haven't looked for before and you can do that with a lot of topics but it was also because we are giving this focus tour on Hamilton and slavery in the Skylar's life and his life that's a part of that tour so the more I discovered as I was researching the more I could add into the tour and eventually we decided we can't tell everyone everything on this tour there's just not enough time Um, in general there was not enough time we wanted people to be able to engage with this information themselves because even though I would often tell them you know where I got it from it's one thing for me to be like go on the founders online website and then you know it's another thing for me to be able to say hey if you go on our website you can read this paper and it has all the sources you can look at. So we are really aiming to have something for the public that was coming to our site to be able to continue engaging with.
0: Okay. Their article Kind of took off. It's been getting national and international news, so there's been a little bit of of hubbub about it, um, which is exciting. And it's definitely, uh, I think, it's starting a really important conversation. Oh, and one other thing I want to point out is, I think that it's really cool that you point out the fact that these aren't like brand new documents. Like other people have talked about these documents, but sometimes what you need is a new lens, and sometimes what you need is a different perspective. Maybe take your sort of heroic lens of Hamilton off and just look at the facts and just look at the harm that he caused and exactly. to other people's lives. Yes. Exactly. And that is a valuable addition to the historical conversation, even if you haven't found some like brand spanking hidden in a covered document that no one's ever seen before.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Did anything about the response to your article surprise you?
1: A lot of it did. First of all, I didn't expect much of a response um, because, you know, I, we published it on our parks webpage. We, we shared it and that was kind of that. And I thought, you know, it it would get some attention. I thought it'd be kind of slow, I guess, the attention that we get. And then a local uh, reporter for the Daily Gazette, Asked to interview me, and from there, things took off. I did not ever think the New York Times uh, would want to interview me over this article. So, I guess I did not predict any of the responses about to get. But one thing I learned through it all was there is an awesome community of historians out there who really supported me through this, and Skylar Mansion, everyone, you know, at the kind of historic Bureau of Preservation also really supported me, even when there was some
0: disagreements with what I had published. You just talk about slavery, and there's always this inevitable negative backlash. So I'm really glad that you have people who have your back, because it's important. And that's part of the reason people don't have the conversation, because there's always this sort of wave of backlash. And I just, I, I want to just point out like how common it is for national park sites to put these PDF articles online and for nobody to read them. Exactly.
1: That's why I was really surprised.
0: <laughs> that was sort of background of Jesse's historical work, but I don't want to make this whole episode just about Alexander Hamilton. It's a Women's History podcast we wanna talk about the Schuyler sisters a little bit. So I will link to Jesse's article. And if it's, if you don't mind, I could, you said your colleague had some blog posts on your site that you, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I'll put all, some of this in my show notes so you can read up and follow up on your own. Um, but we decided that we're going to do a Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton letter. The Schuyler sisters are so great as characters in Hamilton. But what, in your opinion, after doing all this research and digging, did Lin-Manuel Miranda get right? And what did he get wrong?
1: Yeah. So I think one of the main things he got right with the Schuyler sisters is portraying how close they are. Um, Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy seem to be like a unit because they're born within three years. So yeah, they're very close in age and they kind of yeah, educated together. Um, They remain close through adulthood, it seems. So he really portrays that well. The, I think, most obvious thing that isn't right in the musical when it comes to Skylers is there were more kids. Um, <laughs> Catherine, Catherine actually had 15 children oh overall. On. And one of the like wildest things is that her oldest, Angelica, and her youngest, Katie, shared a birthday 25 years apart. I know. <laughs> and uh, Catherine sadly lost seven of those children. She had twins and triplets among those children before their first birthday, So there were other Skylar sisters, there were three sons, but I totally get the creative choice to say, you guys don't make the cut. (laughs) That's a lot of kids.
0: It'd be a really long song, sort of introducing them. So long.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I guess the other thing that I typically talk about is the Angelica-Hamilton relationship. One of the other things in the musical that
0: I wouldn't say is exactly right. Tell me a little bit about the letter that you picked and what made you choose it.
1: I chose this letter because, first of all, I like Eliza. Um, I find her a fascinating person. And because this is one of two letters that still exists to our knowledge from before Hamilton's death, so for 50 years, her first 50 years of life, we've got two letters. This is to Angelica. The other one's actually to Peggy. Um, So I find that very fitting that both the surviving letters are to her sisters. And I chose this one because I don't know how well known it is, because I know a lot of people will know from the musical that she destroys those letters from the first 50 years of her life. So I think it's important to highlight one of the
0: two that have survived. Yeah. The letter that we're going to read today is from Elizabeth Hamilton to her sister, Angelica. Uh, The letter is from 1789. So at this point, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton is 32 years old and her sister, Angelica Schuyler Church, is 33. Elizabeth has been married to Alexander Hamilton for about nine years and Angelica has been married to John Barker Church for about 12 years. So just real fast right there that's something that does not turn up in the hamilton musical yeah. that <laughs> yes. angelica was actually married yes <laughs> so so angelica was married to john parker church for a while all right to get into the context of exactly what's going on at this time 1789 1789 George Washington had appointed Alexander Hamilton Secretary of the Treasury just two months before this letter was written, so things are really picking up for Alexander Hamilton and Elizabeth at this time. Uh, and Angelica Schuyler Church was actually living in England with her husband, but she had come back for a visit. So, why is Elizabeth writing to Angelica at this particular moment?
1: I think it really is because she had just been there. Now she's, you know, on the boat back to England and. Elizabeth seems to be expressing just kind of the raw feelings that she has about Angelica leaving and that uncertainty of when they're going to see each other again. So I think she's kind of just putting it down on paper what she feels about Angelica having just been there and she didn't get to stay for long either. It was a very short visit and that's always uh state in my mind since that voyage was not easy or short itself that she actually came back for such a short time but um you you know I think she's writing to her just
0: because she misses her. With that context I'll go ahead and read the letter. Elizabeth Hamilton to Angelica Church 8th November 1789. My very dear beloved Angelica I have seated myself to write to you but my heart is so saddened by your absence that it can scarcely dictate. My eyes so filled with tears that I shall not be able to write you much, but remember, remember my dear sister of the assurances of your returning to us and do all you can to make your absence short. Tell Mr. Church for me of the happiness he will give me in bringing you to me, not to me alone, but to fond parents, sisters, friends, and to my Hamilton who has for you all the affection of a fond own brother. I can no more. Adieu, adieu, E-H. So what about this letter strikes you as interesting?
1: What really got me is just the emotion behind it. It's clear how much Eliza loves Angelica, how she misses her, how badly she wants her to be with her in New York. And it really gives us a look into that sisterly bond that we can see, is there, from other letters, but not from Eliza's perspective.
0: I totally agree that you get it's very raw emotion in this letter, which you don't get in a lot of 18th century letters, in my opinion. Like the, it's something that you sort of have to sit down and write and be careful about. And sometimes you write more than one draft, but this is short. It's clearly something that she just wrote from the heart and just sent off. So it's a really beautiful sort of snapshot, I think, into their relationship. I, as I was trying to find out more about exactly what's going on at this time, found a letter to, uh, so I found another letter. So this is sort of Angelica's response, I think, to this one, but she's writing it to Alexander Hamilton. Although, although the date, the dating that they give things is different. So maybe they're writing these at the exact same time and they cross paths. That's also a possibility.
1: (laughs) I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So they're both thinking about each other and they're writing at the exact same time. All right. So here's Angelica's letter. To Alexander Hamilton, they don't know exactly when it's written. They're saying sometime from 5 to 7 November, 1789. I have almost vowed not to stay three weeks in England. My baron desires me to write beaucoup de Petit Folie, but I am not much disposed for gaiety, and yet I endeavor already to make myself tolerable to my fellow passengers, that my sweet friend's advice may not be lost on me. Do my dear brother endeavor to soothe my poor Betsy? Comfort her with the assurances that I will certainly return to take care of her soon. Remember this also yourself, my dearest brother, and let neither politics or ambition drive your Angelica from your affections. The pilot leaves us this evening. He will call on you with my letter. Adieu, my dear brother. May God bless and protect you. Praise your ever affectionate Angelica, ever, ever yours. Bitter whilst in the sight of my friends. Thus far, my dear brother, I am content with my company and apparently they with me, but how can I be content when I leave my best and most invaluable friends? Adieu, my dear Hamilton. You said I was as dear to you as a sister. Keep your word and let me have the consolation to believe that you will never forget the promise of friendship you have vowed. A thousand embraces to my dear Betsy. She will not have so bad a night as the last, but poor Angelica. Adieu, mine plus my best affectionate wishes to my Baron, same to von Breck and L'Enfant. And that's the end of the letter. It says packet, six o'clock all well on board. So that's probably a note from the people delivering the letter. Um, the Baron that she's talking about is Baron von Steuben, uh, who is a friend of Angelica's. So she's mentioning sort of all of her old revolutionary war buddies that Hamilton will still be talking to. So with sort of this letter combined with the other letter, what, in your opinion, do you think this tells us about the relationship between Angelica, Elizabeth, and Alexander?
1: Yeah, I love these two letters in the context of each other. I think it once again shows that sisterly bond, because the opening and closing we see concern for Eliza, um, Angelica knows how upset she is at their separation. She's looking out for her, even from her voyage across the Atlantic. Uh, it hits on a theme between Angelica and Hamilton as well. And they share this sibling-like bond too. He seems to be part of the family and to be accepted by Angelica, who is so close to Eliza, as kind of uh, a Schuyler brother, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. um, he's one of the Schuylers now. Um and I find it interesting too that she's she wants him to write to her. I think that they, you know, they do share really great letters back and forth. Um, they're very intellectually witty with each other, and you know, I know in the musical, they they have this bit of a romantic undertone, um, to say the least. <laughs> but um, if you read the letters, they constantly call themselves brother and sister. And I think this letter, we can see that beginning to happen.
0: Yeah. And I think this is another example of like what lens you look at a letter through. Because I think if you, if you look at these letters, thinking Angelica's in love with Hamilton, you can read this as something a little bit almost bitter, like very, very much the way that Miranda writes it. But if you take those glasses off and you read it as somebody who writes flirtily with everybody, I love Angelica. I love all of her letters, but this is just how she writes with people. She's also been living in France for a while. And this is how French women write to people. (laughs) Um, It just comes across as flirtier. And she's mostly talking about Elizabeth. She's talking about hug Betsy, embrace Betsy. Like you're my brother. Make sure Betsy's okay. I feel like really Elizabeth is the focus of this one.
1: Definitely she is.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I I can understand where that take comes from, but it doesn't have quite as much historical backing as people want. Um, When I, my first introduction to uh, Angelica Schuyler Church was not from anything really about Hamilton but was because of her correspondence with Thomas Jefferson. She also, yeah, yeah. (laughs) people (laughs) will say that they were having an affair all the time too. And I'm like, it's interesting that people say she's having an affair with every person she writes with. (laughs) Uh, Digging into the research and the documents at the Schuyler House, what insight do you have about sort of the sibling relationship, and even Peggy in there, and the other siblings, what was their relationship like?
1: It's really through letters that we kind of understand what the relationships were like. And one thing in this letter in particular is that Angelica, she mentioned something about caring for Eliza, saying, I'll come back to take care of her soon. I think I'm misquoting it exactly. But I found that interesting, because we know historically that Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy when they were between the ages of like eight and ten they were sent to New York City and they lived with relatives and that's where they were educated so Mm -hmm. they're away from home they're with distant relatives so you could think they might rely on each other and I think this could potentially back that up a bit that Angelica here is clearly playing the role of an older sister still um, even though they're very close in age and that that closeness i would imagine came from childhood and remained through adulthood but that's up for interpretation we we know the older three sisters were close we see them kind of tease peggy in letters angelica will write to eliza asking about peggy at one point she uses this whole euphemism from the time asking um, if Peggy bears any usefulness to the Commonwealth yet after her marriage to Stephen Van Rensselaer. So it's her way of saying, is Peggy pregnant yet? (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's, It's fascinating that really Angelica and Eliza seem to share the most correspondence, but Peggy comes up in those letters and Angelica will often be like, hey, get Peggy to write to me. Whereas they don't really talk about their brothers that much. And that's probably because the, next surviving children are considerably younger than them um you know the schuyler sisters as we think of them the oldest three are born in the late 1750s and philip jeremiah schuyler and johnny so johnny's the eldest and philip jeremiah the younger brother they're born in the 1750s. 60s and then the youngest brother is born in 1773 and then we have two more daughters born after that so they're so far apart in age that Angelica and Eliza their children are really more like friends to their youngest sibling than you know an aunt and a niece or nephew relationship there so yeah. it's a completely different thing for say Eliza and the youngest sister Katie I think is interesting because we know she lives with the Hamiltons while she's being educated so you can only imagine what that relationship is like she's my sister but she's kind of like in control of my life you know from Katie's point of view so I've always wondered what that is like and because there are actually letters between them only from Eliza's side once they're much much older I wonder how that impacted that relationship later
0: on yeah different from like the close sibling camaraderie it would be more yeah complicated than that (laughs) I do notice even in Elizabeth's letter she mentions try to convince Mr. Church to send you back to me do you know how the family felt about Angelica's husband because she seems like very much patriotic American. She came back to America for the, for the inauguration. So she's clearly very patriotic to be living in England um, with John Barker Church. Do you know how the family felt about that?
1: Yeah, so it's off to a rocky start. They do elope. Um, they are <laughs> <laughs> so that that's going to set the tone a bit. And they actually are the first out of four Skylar children to elope. We have a unusually high elopement rate in the family. <laughs> <laughs> I I would say it's not a great relationship right away. Actually, they will not speak with her parents for about two weeks until. Her maternal grandfather kind of interferes and manages to get her and John Barker church and uh, her parents to meet and kind of make up for what's happened. And at that point, Skylar does say he accepts him as a son, but he, we don't see at least in letters that closeness that he has, say, with Hamilton. Hamilton, he outright calls a son in certain letters, whereas there's there's this letter um, I forget which child it's to, where Philip Schuyler basically says after hearing John Barker Church just won this like wild amount of money over in England gambling, he's like, I wish he lost it all and that <laughs> he would just stop gambling. Um So, he, I think. They disagreed in some ways, but the whole way that John Barker Church really, I think, meets Angelica, as far as I'm aware, is because he is actually working, using a false name at the time, uh, with the Continental Congress. So she is marrying someone who's English, but he isn't a loyalist, I guess you would say. You know, he's working with the Americans, and they seem to have a very passionate romance I would say for her to agree to elope with him she's smart she knew what she was doing she knew what she wanted and she
0: went and got it <laughs> <laughs> so, okay do people think he was like a spy do you like why was he going by a false name at that time
1: there's a few things theories and I actually do not know which one is true I don't know if anyone does actually if anyone it will be uh my former co-worker I mentioned earlier Danielle Funicello who's writing a biography on Angelica okay but there's one version is he was in a duel in England and he thought he killed the guy so he came over to America under a false name don't know how true that is. I think the other version is probably closer to the truth, which is he was in debt, um, (laughs) partially from a failed business venture, which I don't think was entirely his fault. I think some of it was inherited. It partially could be from gambling, based on what we see later on. I've heard Um, some gambling rumors. (laughs) Gambling. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing that I think really supports that historically is that when they leave United States at the end of the war they go to Paris for him to collect the money he has earned because he ends up making a lot of money from the war and they go to England where I believe that's when he pays off his debts and then oh I'm you know John Barker Church again I'm no longer John Carter and Angelica switches her name and you know, it's, it's, it's a mess of names.
0: Martha Washington's always like, say hello to Mrs. Carter. And then it's like, this is Angelica <laughs> Scott of church. <I'm> like, oh. <laughs> I can see again, why this didn't make it into the musical, but it's also very dramatic and interesting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So sort of sum up a lot of times when I finish one of these letters, I ask my guest, um, is there anything that when you read this letter just really resonates with you?" as something that you recognize that feels like it something that you could almost feel today something modern
1: absolutely so i think this letter is very pertinent to where we are right now in history you know we see eliza longing for angelica to come back we see the pain and their separation and i think that's something a lot of us can relate to right now is a lot of us are separated from people we love and I think Eliza's really raw emotion at that could be something that a lot of us might want to say to a loved one, whether or not we feel we can. Um, she feels she can, which speaks to their relationship. And I guess I want to say for them, it's good news they get reunited. Um, Angelica does come back and live in uh, New York City permanently in 1797. So at the time this letter was written that was all uncertain they didn't know if for one she'd ever be back and uh eventually she comes back eventually they're back together and you know we're living in an uncertain time as well so hopefully this gives
0: us a bit of hope <laughs> oh that's so sweet <laughs> uh but yeah so the, the human emotions are the same at uh something that is different obviously is like, because nowadays we have stuff like zoom and you can keep in touch with people so much easier Uh, for her to be going to England. That is a huge distance. It's dangerous travel. It's, you can get sick, you can die. It's a difficult medical science. Wasn't very advanced back then. You really didn't (laughs) know when somebody was going on one of these long trips, if you'd ever see them again and writing correspondence was, you could definitely keep in touch with somebody that way, but it took a long time and it was complicated. It took, could be three months before a letter that you wrote in England arrived in New York. So she is, I'm sure after having missed her sister for that time to have her sister visit and sort of remember how fun and how close they were. And then just to have her go back after such a short Uh visit was rough. I I completely understand. And I do think there's a little hint in there where she says, Angelica says, she will not have so bad a night as the last. And I'm just imagining that last night they spent together it was just so sad before she got on that boat. This
1: letter just, it, it does make me emotional because you really see how close they were. And can, like you said, just imagine how sad they were at the separation. And like you were saying about the chance of Angelica dying on the voyage or later on, Angelica writes letters to Eliza where she's like, I fear we'll die before I ever see you again. If anyone wants to read their correspondence it is pretty touching I would say
0: thank you so much for joining me today uh Jessie. this was really interesting and I really enjoyed speaking with you
1: thank you thank you for having me on I love talking about the Skylar so thank you for indulging me in that
0: <laughs> well and where I talk about so many southern women it's nice to get some Yankees in there <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, and as for my listeners, make sure you check the show notes. I'm going to be linking to a lot of really interesting outside reading. Um, I'll link to where you can read this letter and some of, at least, some of Angelica's correspondence that turns up in Founders Online. As ever, I am your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much.